The following message is from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. More information about Life Source is available at lifesource.org.au. How to get along. How many of you think it's a good message? How to get along. And this is especially designed for people that need to get along with people that don't believe what they believe. And there's lots, you know, seriously. You know, I'm a pastor. There's a lot of people that don't believe what I believe. And you know what? As a Christian minister, there's a lot of people that I do life with that don't believe what I believe. But you know what? I I can't go through life just fighting with people that don't believe what I believe. I need to get along with people that don't believe what I believe. And maybe you live in a house with someone that doesn't believe what you believe. And maybe you're in relationship with people that don't believe what you believe. So how do you get along? Well, there's a passage of scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 25 that's all about this lady that actually put a plan together to resolve a dispute that was going to bring death to a family. And it's just an an amazing passage because we're going to learn some lessons from this. The lady's name is Abigail. She's married to a guy called Nabal. Now, you've got to feel sorry for Nabal from day one because his name means fool. So his mum decided when he looked at that baby, there we are, you look like a fool, I'm going to call you fool. So, uh, and so he was a pretty rich fool, but nevertheless, fool by name and fool by nature. And so the story goes like this, that, that he was very prosperous, and we can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we can read it, um, but can I tell you the story rather than reading the story? What, what if I just read you two verses, because I was in Poland a couple of weeks ago, and, and because you, you have an interpreter, um, I actually told the story from the Bible, and I was accused of not reading the Bible. So it's like, well, I am reading it to tell you the story. But let me read two verses and then I'll do the rest of the story. Is that okay? So you can tell the hurt that I've got in my spirit here and I'm just trying to overcome it. Verse 2 says, There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep. So in Australian standards, that's not really rich, is it? And in New Zealand standards either. And a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. How about that for a, a how about that in the Bible? So the Bible talks about your wife and then it talks about you. Your wife, good understanding, beautiful in appearance. You, harsh and evil. There you go. That puts it right down there. So this is the way the story goes. So he's got his sheep out in the fields and David's out there with his band. He's got 600 men. He's got his band and you know, it's in that in-between time. You know, the in-between time between David becoming king, Saul still being king. It's in that in-between time. So he's been exiled. He's out there with his band of guys and he's trying to make a living somehow. And Nabal lives at Carmel and he's got these sheep. And, and so David decided that he, he's going to look after the shepherds. He's going to basically do the right thing and protect them from other 
marauding bands that would try to say, well, there's some free barbecues there. And David was like a wall, protected Nabal's stuff. It's shearing season, okay? So it's time of celebration. Shearing season was a festive time. They put on the barbecues. They you know, basically put a few sheep on, and it was on. And so David got 10 guys together and said, why don't you go to Nabal? Tell him the story that we protected, looked after him. And if, you know, in his generosity, I'm sure that you know, he'll donate a few sheep or whatever. So when they turned up, Nabal, and this is what he had. Let me read you another verse so that... And so, so they just said, hey, listen, whatever, you know, we looked after you guys. If there's anything that you want to reciprocate, and this is his response in verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? And so basically on your bike, go home. So how many of you know that's um, countercultural? How many of you know that culture is really important to understand? So for you Aussies, if you go to an Asian home, take off your shoes. You want to make a good impression? Take off your shoes. Make sure that you wear socks with no holes in them, okay? (laughs) Just take it from your pastor. I'm just setting you up for success, okay? So, um, and... Some, some powder on your feet always helps if you've got problems in that area. Anyway, culture. So the deal with a lot of cultures is this. It's called reciprocation. So if someone does you a good turn, you reciprocate. So, and, and we're talking so many cultures of the world, it's expected. And in this Hebrew culture, very much expected. I did you a good turn, now it's your turn to do me a good turn. And if you don't reciprocate, can I tell you, you're in trouble. So when David heard that Nabal was just downright nasty and sent the guys away, David got incredibly angry. I mean, so angry. He says to his band, these, these, are, uh, these are warriors. These guys no swords. They're no cutting people up, you know. This is Old Testament, guys, so don't worry about it. This is, we're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to, you know, have an extra wife. We're not supposed to kill people. This is Old Testament, okay? So just be cool about that. So David gets upset. King David, in the lineage of Jesus, says, okay, 400 guys, put your swords on. We're going to go kill Nabal and all the men in the household. Kill them. I mean, as I said, guys, this is not the way to respond. And um, no putting on swords, no killing people, okay? So he goes, and, and then someone says to Abigail, he says, you would not believe what your husband's done. What did he do? Well, David's men came and, and just wanted some, a gift from us, and your stupid husband turned them away. And so this is what Abigail does. He's verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine. That's a skin in those days was, was a goat that, um, that they pulled all the meat out of and tied up the, four, the, the ends, well, probably six. There's a back end, a front end, the four legs. Fill it up with wine. So it's about 50 litres, okay? So there's 100 litres of wine, just in case you were wondering what that was. Just a little bit of education there. Five sheep already dressed. In other words, they were all ready marinated, ready for the barbecue. 
rather than, you know, bow ties and top hats. <laughs> you got it. Okay, you understand what I'm talking about when they're dressed. Five sears of roasted grain, that's about 70 kilos of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on the donkeys, and she's off to make amends. And so when she finds David, who's now, so she's going down the hill towards David. David's coming up the hill with his band of warriors, ready to, ready to go for it and kill them all. And she actually has the principles of getting along. So here they are, four principles of getting along. You ready? Number one, make getting along a priority. So what she did is that she made haste. That, that the Bible says, then Abigail made haste. In other words, she was busy doing something else, but this was a priority for her. So she changed what she was doing and made this a priority. We need to make getting along a priority. You can't be so busy that you just leave it alone. You can't just say, well, well yeah, I'm too busy. Because as soon as you say, I'm too busy, you've actually made it a lesser thing. Something else is a higher thing. So, so do you really believe that getting along and reconciling is a high priority? Yeah, yeah, no, it is a high priority. Well, let me tell you, I know where your priorities are, but what you give time to. It's, it's a fact of life, folks. You know, so if you've got no time for your family, but I'm too busy. No, what it says is that something else is a high priority. Yeah, but I got to work. Well, then work's a higher priority. So you just got to make time for the things that are your priorities. And you will make time for the things that are your priorities. And it doesn't matter what you say, it's what you do that actually reveals your priorities. You got to make time. Come on, can I, can I talk to some of you guys out there? You got to make time. For romance, you've got to make time for your spouse. You've got to make time for your kids. You've got to make time to play. You've got to make time. You've got to actually make time. You don't, it doesn't come on you. You've got to make it. You, everybody's got 24 hours in a day. Whether you're the president of the United States, the president elect of the United States, the prime minister of Australia, or whether you are just a laborer. Everybody gets 24 hours. It's the same for everybody. And then you determine what you do with those 24 hours. You determine how you prioritize those 24 hours. But everybody gets that gift of 24 hours every single day. So where you prioritize is really where your loves are. And so, and so uh, for me to say to Anne, I love you, but there's no time for her, basically says there's something else. That's a high priority. But, but my time is, 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 is governed for her. And, and so I, I, I've rearranged my time to, to fit into line with my priorities. And you need to do the same. And so you've got to work out whether getting along is a high priority or whether it's a low priority. If it's a high priority, you've got to make time for it. The second thing that she did was that she brought a gift. Here it is. Abigail made haste and she took 200 loaves of bread. And so, you know, we've gone through all the things that she did. Can I just say this? That if you want to get along, sometimes to bring a gift is an open door. The Bible says 
in, in, in Proverbs, uh, let me find it, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 16, that a person's gift makes room for them. And I, I know a long time ago, we used to misinterpret that scripture by, by using, by just changing the, the whole concept that gift was like a talent. So if you have a talent, if you have an ability, then it'll make room for you. But that's not the context that this scripture comes from. It's literally a gift. It's really a present that'll make room for you. It's when you put together something that's a present and you give it to somebody, it actually makes room for you. It opens doors. It's an amazing thing that gifts make room for you. So, so can, for you single guys, can I give you a hint? Huh? If you're interested in a girl, buy her a gift. Find out what she likes and make a gift and it makes room for you. Flowers is always a good clue. Chocolates is another one, unless they give her migraines and then they get thrown back in your face. Um, find something. It's a gift. You know, uh, when, when I first started getting interested in Anne, I, I found out that she hadn't had a pomegranate since she was in Australia and she's from Wales and she loved pomegranate. So I went out and found her a pomegranate and turned up the next day with a pomegranate. And it was like, how romantic is that? Now, how many of you think that a pomegranate is romantic? Mandy's sitting on the front row saying, doesn't do anything for me. It's not, wasn't your love language. It's okay. But it was her love language. How amazing is that? That a pomegranate actually won me the girl. That was pretty cheap, but let me tell you something. I'm still paying. Still, we're talking 37 years later, still paying. Uh, and happy to do so. Let me just add that at the end. But a gift. So, so you got a neighbor that you're out of sorts with? Why don't you get him a gift? Bake a cake. Make sure there's no cyanide in the cake. You know, it's always... <laughs> A good thing, you know, just, <laughs> uh, you know, a gift will make room for you. Do something. Make, just make an amends somehow. You know, it makes room for you. How many, we've got Christmas coming up and, and one of the big figures in Christmas time are the wise men. And, and, you know, the whole concept there is that they actually, room was made for them because they brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought gifts, and because they brought gifts, it made room for them. And I'm saying to you now, you want to get along, find a gift, a gift that's connected, okay? Then the third thing that she did, and this is, this is really, really powerful. So she's, she's made time, she's made it a priority, she's found a gift, and then finally she comes into David's presence, Verse 23, get, get hold of this. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed to the ground. Now, I'm not just saying that you've got to do that with your next door neighbor. When you see them fall on your face, bow to the ground. Or if you're out of sorts with your wife, fall on the ground and kiss her feet. Maybe a foot massage might help as a gift. And I don't know, I'm just putting it out there for some of you guys, but... But what I'm talking about is just being gracious. So it's, it's within your context. She was gracious. She, she adopted a gracious stance and a gracious tone. It's all about being gracious. It's all about finding 
a tone and an attitude that is not arrogant. Now, see, she could have been arrogant. She could have approached this situation. Here's these 400 guys with swords coming to kill a family. She, could have, she just could have walked up with pointed a finger. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are coming to kill my family? I'm here to protect my family. She didn't adopt that attitude. Yet, can I just say to you, my mentor when I was a young pastor growing up, used to have this saying, and he said this, you can catch a lot more flies with honey than with vinegar. Now, some of you are going to have to think about that for a little while. But let me use the Bible verse. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Can I just say to you that to be gracious, Proverbs 15 verse 1, to be gracious, to to approach it with a soft answer, to approach it with a sweet spirit, is always going to win you more points than coming and pointing out, you know, you call yourself a future king? Who do you think you are? Who, you know, her whole attitude was gracious. Her whole attitude was, no, we've done you wrong. Matter of fact, I'll take it upon myself. Not my husband's done you wrong. I've done you wrong. I, you know, I've allowed this to happen. So she took responsibility. What an incredible thing it is to take responsibility for the breakdown of relationship. Can I just say to you, while you're blame shifting, you can't fix anything. Blame shifting is such a scourge in our society. And blame shifting says, it's your fault, not mine. So as soon as you say, it's your fault, not mine, you can't fix a thing because it's not your responsibility. If you haven't made the problem and it's not your problem, how can you fix it? But as soon as you say, I take responsibility, as soon as you start saying that, I take responsibility then you can fix something. And a lot of people aren't willing to take responsibility. You know, I, I know we've got people here that, are, that um, are divorced and remarried and you can't change the past. But can you, can you find a place of equilibrium at least, especially if there's kids involved? You know, I, I know, I know, you know where, where situations are, you know, they've divorced, but there's still, there's still vitriol. And, and so the Kids can't even get married without wondering how in the world is this going to work because mum and dad hate each other. Can we find a place of just resolution? Okay, it didn't work. But can we at least be at peace with each other? It didn't work. But can we find a place? Can we be gracious enough? Or do we, as soon as you come into my presence, that's it, I want to rip your head off. And, you know, just that whole vitriol. What is that? Grace is being Jesus-like. One of the things that we're called to be is to be like Jesus. And that's discipleship, folks. You know, can, can I, let, let, me, let me just say this. When you get saved, you get converted. That's step one. It should never stop at conversion. Because we need to go to step two, which is becoming a disciple. See, conversion is all about not going to hell. And going to heaven. I love the fact that I'm not... Anybody else love the fact that they're not going to hell, but they're going to heaven? That's a good thing, okay? I, I love the fact that, that it's the blood of Jesus and, and uh, beautiful Amanda shared it beautifully around the communion table that my sins are forgiven. It's all past. That's conversion. But you know what? Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make converts. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and make disciples, So a convert is just focused on having their sins forgiven, not going to hell, going to heaven, and that's awesome, 
That's step one. But what's step two? Step two now is becoming a disciple. Step two is now that I'm saved, I need to become a disciple. And a disciple is the transformed person that becomes like Jesus. And so this is the goal is not just for me not to go to hell. That's not the goal, not just to go. I mean, yeah, it's the start, and it's great. And I don't want to go to hell, and I'm sure nobody here wants to go to hell. But I wasn't saved just to not go to hell. I was saved to become like Jesus. I was saved to be transformed. And I want to be a Jesus person. So that wherever I go, I'm a Jesus person. And so when, when my buttons are pushed, I don't respond with offense. But I respond with, with sweetness. If you guys have been in this church long enough, I mean, I've been pastoring this church for 21 years. How many of you noticed that, that there are opportunities for me to get offended? And it's interesting that a few years ago, I started doing some sermons on becoming unoffendable. Wow, I thought that's a great sermon, becoming unoffendable. And it wasn't that long after I started preaching these sermons about becoming unoffendable that I was offended, hugely, hugely offended, seriously offended. And then I had to choose whether I was just going to preach the sermon or live the sermon. And all of you are watching and saying, what's Pastor John going to do? Just preach the sermon or live the sermon? We're watching. And I determined that I, you know, a storm has come to my life, but I wasn't going to let the storm into my life. I can't stop storms coming, but I can stop storms getting in. And you, what you do is you shut the windows, you lock the doors, you batten down the hatches, and you say, there's a storm outside, but I choose whether the storm comes inside. There's a fence that's come to me, but I choose whether I let offense inside of me. And so let me tell you, it was certainly a period of testing in my life because I'd sit there just musing over it, wanting to become offended. But that sermon that I preached on becoming unoffendable just kept haunting me and saying, I wish I hadn't preached that one because now I've got to live it. And it's much easier to preach a message than live a message. How many of you can say amen to that? If you can't say amen, just say, ouch. <laughs> or if you're Polish, it's awa. Because I, I did that. And I said, what's ouch in Polish? And they go, awa. And I thought, there you go. So you can't say amen, say awa. Awa, there you go. So, so here it is. It's about being gracious people. Being gracious people. And you know the toughest place to be gracious? Let me tell you, toughest place to be gracious is at home. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't say anything. Just just leave him alone, okay? Because most of you sit next to your spouse and it's like, you just don't want to put petrol on that fire, baby. You know, just leave it alone, okay? (laughs) You know, it's, it's at home. Why is... Because at home, we, I kind of find that we are at our best behavior outside of home and our worst behavior at home. What is that? Seriously, that's where we ought to be at our best behavior. This is the person that said, I'm going I'm to be with you for, till death do us part. It's like they deserve the best, not the worst. I, I, I want to be Anne's greatest support, not a pain in her neck. I want to be her greatest fan, her, 
her, her greatest admirer than just the one that's attacking and, and pulling her down. What is, it? what is that? I want her to feel like in my presence, she's got her number one fan, her number one encourager, her number one admirer, her number one supporter. What an incredible goal that is. What an incredible goal that is. And you know what? I determined a long time ago that I'd make that my goal. 36 years later, I can honestly say that I am, and she feels that. She feels that she's got her greatest admirer, her greatest supporter in her man. And you know what? That's about that's what being Jesus is all about. Come on, and some of us need to be really convicted on this. That this that that we've got a theology rather than a revelation. And somehow we need to let our theology become our revelation, where this thing is really deep in our spirit. And it fixes things. Can I say that it fixes things? And it makes the devil mad. Because he doesn't want you to be like Jesus. He wants you to be like him. And every time you get angry and resentful and bitter and twisted, you become like him. And every time you're gracious and you respond with a sweet spirit, you become like Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What's your goal? Do you want to be like Jesus? Well, it's going to be tested every single time. It's going to be tested. You know, I've got people coming to me and say, Pastor John must never have a problem. He's always so happy. He's always so positive. He must never have a problem. Well, you know what? I made a determination a long time ago that, number one, I wasn't going to bring my problems to church because you don't need a pastor that's depressed. You don't need for me to be on the stage and saying, oh, guys, you've got to pray for me because I don't know if I can get through another service. Ah, I've had such a tough week, my tough month. How many of you know that that's a great way to empty a church? Huh? Huh? You get revival right out the back door. They can't get out of the church fast enough. You know, I determined a long time ago that I want people to leave better than the way that they come. I want people to come and and be uplifted. And I thought, well, the only way they can do that is for me to be uplifted and me to be an uplifter. And so what I determined is this, is not that problems don't come to me. I just don't let them inside me. I just lock the door to them. And I say, Jesus, would you help me deal with this? Jesus, would you help me respond positively? Help me to respond lovingly? Help me to respond the way that you want to? And can I just say to you, sometimes I don't get it 100% right, but sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to sort it through. Sometimes I've still got a process. I'm not perfect in that, but I try to be, but I make it my goal. I make it my aim. I make it such an important factor because I love you guys. And I love my wife. And I know this, that if I don't get it right, it's going to impact you negatively and it's going to impact my family negatively. And because I love you so much, I make it my priority. And you need to do the same. You need to do the same. Number four, get along. So what was it? Number one, you've got to make it a priority. Number two, get a gift. Just something. Number three, be gracious. 
And number four, say something positive. Say something positive. And this, and, and this is, here's Abigail. I mean, she could have pointed the finger, who do you think you are? But she found something positive to say to David. And here it is in verse 28. She goes, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. There's, there's her taking on that responsibility of saying, I'm not going to blame shift. I'm going to take responsibility. But then this is what she says positively to David. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not in you throughout your days. I mean, she found something positive to say to David. She could have, she could have easily found something negative to say. And you call yourself a man of God and you call yourself the great psalmist and here you are coming to kill my family. She could have found lots of negative things to say to David. Can anybody say amen to that? Some of us are sitting here saying, man, I can find a... That's David, but that's a psalmist and he's out to kill a family. What's to go here? And she could have done that, but she decided, no, I'm going to find something positive to say. And again, you know, it's that, it's that soft word that turns away wrath. So you've got to work out in your scenario whether you're going to pour petrol on the fire. There's a bit of a fire going around. Well, you reckon you can say that? Well, let me tell you what I can do. And, and it's on. And it's like a fight. So is that really what you want? You want to pour more petrol on the fire or do you want to put it out? Because by putting it out, you just respond positively. You say, come on, we're bigger than that. We can sort this out. You know, we, we, we are big people and big people sort it out. I, I, I'm telling you, what, what is going on? You know, to be honest with you, Anne and I got sick and tired of American elections when we went on holidays for, for a month, the only news, we turn on CNN and all you hear is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's all you hear. But you know what? At the end of, of the campaign, Donald Trump tried to say something positive about Hillary. And to be honest with you, every time he's opened his mouth, he said something positive about Hillary. It's like, look, that's over now. Let's, let's see if we can make amends. Let's say something positive. And I think that that's the right approach. It'd be great if all the opponents, one way or other, can start to say positive things about each other and say, you know what, you know, we, it was certainly a battlefield for this election, but now that it's done, let's start saying positive things about each other and see if together we can make a great country. See if together we can turn this thing around. Let's try to find something positive. How many of you know that sometimes it takes a while to say something positive? You know, lots of years ago, Anne and I used to do a fair bit of marriage counseling. We don't do that anymore. We give it to Joe and Peggy. It's like, um, you know, there's others in our church that can do that. But it, this is an interesting thing. An interesting thing because when, when a husband and wife are, are going for hammer and nails and they're coming to see the pastor... They're there to tell us all of the problems. And you know what I used to do just to diffuse it? I'd say, I'd say to the wife, I want you to tell me five positive things about your husband. And then I'd say to the husband, I want you to find five positive things to say about your wife. And you know what? Every time we do that, it'd stop them in their tracks and they'd struggle. Why? Because they were so busy concentrating on what they didn't like about each other that they had no time to focus on what they did like about each other. And here I am trying to put the brakes on, saying, well, we're just, you know, we can go down this track for ages, but can we find something positive to say? And it's like, oh, I've got to think about that. 
I've got to think about that. I've got to think about that. It was interesting in one of the debates. It was asked to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, can you say something positive about the candidate? And How many of you saw that debate where they had to sort it, it was like putting on the brakes. I've got to think about that. It was like my mind actually wasn't going down that track at all. My, and so now that you're putting my mind, let me think about that. And so, and so Hillary says, yeah I, yeah, I do like his family. And, and, and Trump says, yeah, I do like the way that she's a fighter, persistent. And it was like, how many of you noticed that a switch happened? It was like a, something happened because they were just focusing on the positive and not on the negative. Can I ask you the question, if you're fighting with your neighbor or fighting with your spouse, can you find something positive to say? Can you approach it with a gift, a tone, which is a gracious tone, and then with something positive to say, you know what, I value our relationship and I want us to sort it out. You know, if the divorce has already happened, just to say, I value our kids and I want us to find a place where we can at least be civil with each other. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to make it better? Those eight words turn things around. What do I need to do to make it better? I value, here it is, I value our relationship. I value what we've got. I want to do something to turn this around. Just positive words like that basically turn the whole thing around. The tone turns and you can start getting along. Folks, can I just say to this, life is too short to be fighting battles all the time. Life is too short for doing that. And last week I started this little series on, uh, on, on getting on better and get last week's message on, uh, on, on giving someone a lift, on the gift of encouragement. Just such a beautiful, powerful thing, the gift of encouragement. Add to this how to get along. And I'm telling you that things can start changing in relationships. How many of you have got a relationship that needs a bit of mending? Just give me a wave. How many of you know of a relationship in your scenario that needs a bit of mending? A neighbor, a friend, a family member. I'm looking around and I can see so many hands going up. And I can see some people that your hands aren't going up, but I know that you need some mending in some of your relationships. I, I, I just want us to just commit it to God, okay? Can we do that right now? Father, I just pray right now for every family, every person in this building that's in a relationship that's broken. I just pray, Lord, that by your grace, you'll help us to navigate a way where we can fix this. Holy Spirit, you're able to turn things around. There's nothing too difficult for you. Some of you are sitting there saying, John, mine's too far gone. Mine's too far gone. Come on, the Bible says, is there anything too difficult for God? Is there anything too difficult for God? Thanks for listening to this message from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at lifesource.org.au to find out more about our church and to also access other free resources.